Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So Meg joined our staff uh, in Brooklyn a few years ago under the job title Interim Children's Ministry Coordinator, which is code for we need someone to fill this position, but don't really have the money for it. Will you hold us over? And that's how she began working with us. Six months into that, we offered her a permanent position. She told me I'd really like to think it over. Later, she told me I actually definitely was out, but I was trying to figure out a way to let you down gently, and I didn't have it quite yet. So she prayed then about it and began to feel this tug that God was actually calling her to quit her full-time job with Upward Mobility to take a part-time position as children's ministry coordinator at a church plant. Now, a decent full-time salary with benefits gets you like a shared room in a dingy apartment with asbestos and seven cats in New York City. A, a part-time position at a new nonprofit that exists exclusively on donations? Just absurd. But she couldn't shake the sense that God was saying, this is where I'm inviting you. Come and follow me and I'll take care of the rest. Fast forward just a couple of weeks after that, we're having this prayer meeting at our church, and a friend of mine who happened to be in from out of town had never met Meg before, had no context of her story whatsoever, just said, excuse me there, you there, um, I think I have a picture for you. It's a picture of an abacus. Now, I, I thought that was a character from Lord of the Rings, but it's not. An abacus <laughs> is that, uh, there, I think we have an image of it, but it's that, it's that toy uh, in... Uh, a, doctor's office playroom that no one ever plays with, the counter where you move things to the side. So I've got an image of an abacus and all the scales are moved to one side. And I have a sense from God that you're contemplating a decision, a big decision in your life. And there's one side that clearly has all of the human wisdom on it. And the other side is completely empty. And God's saying, choose the empty side. Trust me and choose the empty side. Does that make sense? And as he's speaking to her, tears are just streaming down her face, and I slid the job description in a pen in front of her. At that very, I didn't actually do that last part. But how did she end up working at Oaks Church Brooklyn? Well, you see, Meg uh, has, has a set of beliefs that can be explained by Scripture. Who God is and how God has spoken throughout history can explain the foundation that she lives on in her beliefs, but the shape of her life can only be explained with prophecy, that God is speaking in the same way presently in this very moment to her as throughout history. The foundation of her life is scripture, but the shape of her life is prophecy. So you've come to prayer ministry training, and here at Bridgetown, we believe that prayer is a conversation, not just a monologue. 
And there's so many different forms of prayer. There's contemplative or silent or centering prayer for our inner formation. There's intercession. That means praying for others. There's petition. That's when I ask God for things for myself. There's confession, bearing my heart to God and asking him for forgiveness or for the freedom to forgive. There's adoration. That's the prayer of worship. And I'm for all of them. Like the more you get to know me, the more you will know that my life is defined by prayer, that I'm a person of prayer. It's at the center of everything I do. And every form of prayer to Jesus, I'm for it. You know, there's this beautiful canvas that we have and paint with prayer. And there's all sorts of different colors that we can use. And I'm for all of them. But tonight, we're specifically talking about prayer ministry. Meaning, how do we pray for someone in a moment of response to God, whether that's in a Sunday gathering at the front, or it's sitting around a dinner table in one of your communities, or it's just in a divine moment on the street with a complete stranger? How, when someone else is clearly in a moment of response to God, do we join what God is doing and even be a part of accelerating or clarifying what God is doing? So this is a training in listening prayer. The first task is to listen, and my spoken prayer then flows from that listening as a response. In a word, it's prophecy. And because that's not a word we use a whole lot these days, I want to establish some common ground. I would define prophecy this way. It is to hear God's voice on behalf of an individual or a group. And before we go any further, I just want to stop and acknowledge that the second you drop the P word, In a 21st century American church, the room immediately splinters into three individual groups. So group one would be some of you have a longing for the gift of prophecy, and you're thinking, finally, let's get weird. I've been waiting for this. And if that's you, I I just want to say that it's really, really possible to have a good desire for experience with God without actually having a biblical foundation on which to set that desire. And so what I want to give you tonight is a solid theological biblical foundation on which to build a very good hunger. Uh, Secondly, there's some of you that hear a word like prophecy and you immediately get more concerned and defensive than you do excited. And that could be because of unfamiliarity, like maybe you grew up in a tradition that essentially glossed over passages like the one we just read, or topics like the one that we're talking about tonight, and so this just isn't a part of your spiritual history. And so because it's unfamiliar, you kind of stay away from it. Or maybe it's because of familiarity. Maybe you actually grew up in a toxic or manipulative spiritual environment, and your only interaction with prophecy brings up bad memories and spiritual wounding from your past, and so the easiest thing to do is just stay away from concepts like these altogether, to hold them at arm's length, and that's as close as they get. And then finally, um, or or I, I do want to say, if that's you, I want to offer you an explanation and an understanding of prophetic ministry that should not be feared, but actually longed for and eagerly desired within the church. And then finally, I do imagine that there's got to be some in the room thinking, I've got no idea what you're talking about, man. Seems like you think you're stepping on some controversial ground, and I'm just thinking, this is a really long intro. How long of a prayer ministry training is this? And if that's where you are, then that's probably the perfect place to start. That's probably the perfect place to begin engaging with this. So as an introduction to listening prayer, tonight I want to trace the theme of prophecy in the story, in the church, and then in this church. So we'll begin with prophecy in the story. 
There is no era of biblical history without the prophetic. The Bible, stripped of prophetic ministry, is a story that cannot actually be told. Let me show you. Uh, In the beginning, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now the Hebrew word for, for spirit here is ruach, which can be translated as spirit or as breath. Uh, So another way of saying the spirit was hovering is God was breathing. Now what happens when the breath of God meets the unformed substance of creation? Well, creation happens. God speaks creation into being. Stars and land and sea, all of it come from the breath of God. Lastly, God creates man and woman and something unique happens. He puts his spirit against that same Hebrew word ruach into them. God breathes into them and he fills our lungs with his very spirit. So human beings were always meant to be filled with God's spirit, but sin stole his divine breath from our lungs. That brings us to prophecy in the Old Testament. We quickly discover there that God is stubborn in the very best of ways that he, the betrayed, becomes the pursuer and fights for the hearts of people. So what exactly is God's plan for redemption? Well, it's the very same thing. He just keeps on speaking. We'll jump ahead to Numbers chapter 11 where we read, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. So when the presence of God falls on a cloud like Moses, what happens? God speaks. And in response, Moses speaks the words he's hearing from God to the people. He prophesies. And then Moses imparts some of that same spirit on 70 other elders. And what immediately happens? They prophesy. They begin to make sense of what they're interpreting from God and speak that out to others. Their lungs are refilled with the ruach, the breath, or the spirit of God. But there's a tragic phrase at the end of the passage, but did not do so again. So it's temporary. It's not an ongoing spiritual gift. It's just a divine moment. And Moses is the beginning of a pattern where God selected certain individual people and he communicated with them directly. And those people then took his private whispers and spoke them aloud publicly. We call them prophets. But they were the exception, not the rule. The spirit is present, but only making cameo appearances. Now the good news is that God keeps on speaking, but the bad news is that God's voice is rare and unpredictable and not for everyone. And that's basically the premise of the whole Old Testament. That the very same God who spoke creation into being doesn't go silent after that. The way of redemption is the same as the way of creation. He speaks and new things come to be. But that speaking is not the normal experience for the everyday believer. Not yet anyway. That brings us up to part three, which is Jesus. John chapter one describes Jesus this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus was a living prophecy. He became the word of God in human form. And then after his life, death, and resurrection on the evening of the first Easter Sunday, Jesus appears to his disciples and something interesting happens. This is John 20. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive my Holy Spirit. In other words, here's my breath for your lungs, my ruach, my spirit in your flesh. 
Just keep on turning to the right in your Bible and you'll come to the book of Acts where the church was founded on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given just as Jesus promised. But what immediately happens in Acts chapter 2, they all start speaking the words of God. In other words, all Christians are suddenly acting like prophets. Peter stands up to explain what's going on, and he says, what you're seeing right now is exactly what the prophet Joel said would happen. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women those days, I will pour out my spirit. So God's promise is there's a day coming when my spirit, again, my ruach or my breath, won't just be for cameo appearances for a select few anymore, but will be the, the, the breath that fills the lungs of all of my people just as it was always meant to be. And that promise goes for children and for seniors, for men and for women, for the rich and the poor, all people, the educated and the illiterate, the Jew and the Gentile, the priest and the convict, all will receive my spirit. They will get my voice. And what was phenomenalized on the day of Pentecost becomes normalized as the church grows and matures. So Joel's prophecy in Acts 2 becomes Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 14 that Bethany read for us a minute ago. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Paul goes on to say in this chapter, I wish that all of you would prophesy. All of you? Yes, because all of you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. All of you now permanently carry what the prophets of old only had at particular times for particular purposes. That's why this gift is called prophecy in the New Testament, because it's the ordinary practice of what was extraordinary before Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive. That's the biblical story. And prophecy is not an optional sub-point in the fine print at the bottom of the story. It's at the very heart. Abraham, Moses, David, Esther, De Deborah, Mary, Peter, Paul, all of them have beliefs you can only explain with the Bible and lives you can only explain with the prophetic. The foundation of their story is scripture, but the shape of their stories is prophecy. So if the Bible is your guidebook to relationship with God, your expectation should be that God is speaking to you. Not just to a couple of individuals in this church community you deem as extra super spiritual, but to you. So the question isn't, does God speak to me? If the Bible is, is the foundation for what you believe about God, he does. The question is, are you listening? Now, what I've just given you is the biblical summary of prophecy, and everything that I've said so far is generally agreed upon across every era of Christian history and every tradition. However, there are certain denominations and traditions today who would say, yes, that is absolutely the biblical story and the biblical instruction, but that part of the Bible no longer applies to us today. And typically, these sorts of traditions go under the banner of cessationists. Cessationists believe that the voice and power of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the New Testament uh, has ceased. That God gave the Spirit as an extra boost to the early church, 
But when the biblical canon closed with Revelation, the Spirit stopped speaking prophetically. That we have the written word of God, but no longer the active voice of God. So I want to step to the side and slow down for just a moment because some of you either have heard or will hear this teaching, and I want to respond to it pastorally. I grew up attending cessationist churches. I was educated at a cessationist institution under cessationist teaching, and I believe the logic that that God gave his spirit for a power surge for the early church we no no longer need anymore is so, so flawed. And I'll give you a few reasons for that. I want to give you an experiential, a philosophical, and a biblical reason. So let's start with the very weakest of those. That's the experiential reason. If I were to say to you that God no longer speaks to us today the same way that he spoke in the New Testament, I would have to deny a ton of my own personal experience. Because I can tell you everything I believe by walking you through the scripture, but I cannot tell you my story without prophecy without God speaking here and now today. So to deny the prophetic would be to deny a lot of my own experience with God. Uh, Secondly, a philosophical reason. God's entire motive is relationship. Now, if I told my wife, look, we're never going to speak again. However, I have assembled a leather-bound book, and I'd like for you to read about me day in and day out for the remainder of our years together so that we can grow in deeper intimacy. She would slap me across the face, right? Because relationship does not exist without back and forth communication on any level. It makes no sense that a God so insistent on speaking would decide somewhere near the turn of the first century, whew, what a wild ride. Sermons, mediocre songwriting, and typically awkward small groups should take it from here. You know, it just makes no sense. And then finally, let me give you a biblical reason. This is the most important reason. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. It's the key passage for the cessationist argument. I want you to hear it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Hmm. That does seem pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So prophecy will one day cease. That is the biblical teaching. When will that happen? When completeness comes. So the question we have to ask is, what is completeness and when does it come? And the cessationist answer is that completeness is the close of the biblical canon, which happened in the fourth century. To which I would respond, really? I mean, do you really believe that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, called completeness a successful council meeting to decide which scrolls got into the final edit? Just keep reading the very same passage. Verse 12 says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully. So completeness comes when we see him face to face. It's when Christ returns. When will prophecy cease? When we're face to face with Jesus. When we no longer need prophecy to reveal him because we're all staring directly at him. He's revealed himself to us as the ultimate prophecy. Now we're not there yet, and so we're still living in a time of prophetic ministry. And in my honest and humble opinion, A theology says that God doesn't speak through the power of his spirit anymore is a belief constructed not on biblical teaching, but on a lack of experience. 
I've never experienced it, so God must not be into it. The gap between biblical teaching and my current experience, it's not a reason to justify away an invitation to intimacy with God. It's actually a gap that he longs to close so that we can experience more and more and more of him. All right, we better keep going. Prophecy in the church. So 1 Corinthians 14, again, this is our central text tonight. It is the biblical manifesto for the role of prophecy in the gathered church. And I just want to draw out a few of the basic principles that emerge from this chapter. The first one is this, that prophecy is the normal experience of church life. So here we have an entire chapter of the Bible devoted to how to use the prophetic gift when the church gathers together just like this. So the assumption behind the whole chapter is that when God's people gather, God is speaking. The Bible just assumes that prophecy is active in the church. And in fact, in the New Testament church, we read written instruction directly on the use of the gift of prophecy in the letters to the Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians, and to Timothy, and in the epistles of Peter, Jude, and Revelation. So it is the biblical expectation. Dallas Willard, who John Mark is obsessed with, and is, who is as widely respected as anyone across different traditions in the modern church, he says this, If we look at the advice of how the meetings of the church were supposed to proceed, as given in 1 Corinthians 14, we see that they assumed that numerous people in the congregation were going to have some kind of communication from God, which they would be sharing with others in the group. To sum up, if it's the church you're in, expect prophecy. See, one thing that keeps us from practicing the prophetic is this assumption that it's supposed to feel more spiritual than it actually does. Like, prophecy sounds mystical, so it must feel mystical, right? Most people miss out on the voice of God, not because it's too mystical, but because it's too familiar. To receive a word of prophecy is not to be possessed by an angel. It's so much more ordinary than that. One saint describes the voice of God as as light as the touch of a feather on your skin. So it's light enough that you can ignore it entirely if you want to, quite easily. But it's also noticeable enough that you can engage it and pay attention to it if you want to. Most people miss the voice of God because it's too familiar. And if I had to describe what it feels like to receive a revelation from God or a word of prophecy, I would say it feels like a thought in my imagination, like any other thought, only it originates from the outside and not from within. So it's a thought that just pops into my head like any other thought does, only the originating place feels a bit foreign instead of familiar. Second uh, major principle is that prophecy invites intimacy. So will you humor me for just a second? Can everyone just close their eyes for just a moment? I promise nothing weird's going to happen to you. If the person next to you touches your knee, raise your hand and I'll, I'll come and make sure they stop it. Okay, whose voice do you hear right now? Mine, right? Okay, open your eyes. How did you know that? How did you know that? Because your eyes were closed. You didn't see me say those words. How did you? Because you know my voice. Now look, most of you have been following Jesus a whole lot longer than you've been listening to me teach tonight. So if you already are familiar with my voice, you should be familiar with God's, shouldn't you? Jesus says in John chapter 10, his sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
And I said before, the question isn't, is God speaking, but it's, are you listening? And that's completely true. But of course, anyone who's ever tried to hear the voice of God knows that it's also not quite that simple. That God tends to make himself available, but not obvious. And so hearing his voice takes practice. It, It takes the uncomfortable, repeated risk that we call obedience. So how do we learn the shepherd's voice? We follow him. We ask God to speak to us, and then we act in obedience, only half sure that it's God that we heard and not just a thought that popped into our head. And so mistakes are going to be made. Uh, Simon, who's one of the elders of our church back in New York, he was once on the Metro North train a couple of years ago. That's a train that takes you out of the city to towns in upstate New York. And so the train rides are pretty lengthy, and he sits down, and he's sitting directly across from this woman, and he immediately felt like God gave him a word for her about her vocation. And so because he's also a socially adjusted normal guy, he thought, I'm going to hold this because it's a two-hour train ride, and things might get weird, so I'll wait till we're almost there, and then I'll share it with her. But the prompting was heavy. And he just kept feeling like, I'm meant to share this. I'm meant to share, us and share this. So he said, okay, excuse me, ma'am, uh, would you mind? Uh, I think I might actually have a, I think God might be speaking to me on your behalf. I know that sounds crazy, but I just had this picture and did it, and he describes it, and he says, does that resonate with you at all? And she says, no. I don't even work in that industry. And he was like, okay, thank you so much for your time. (laughs) And I love that story because that is what learning the shepherd's voice is like, right? The only way to learn is by experience. There is no formula for the shepherd's voice. There's only familiarity. And so failure is a part of learning the prophetic We have to be willing to laugh at ourselves if we're actually going to grow in the gift of prophecy. We have to be willing to try to follow him and fall flat on our faces if we're ever going to actually carry his voice in love to others. The only way I know how to survive as a parent of young children is by learning to laugh at myself. Because I try so hard to make this day go this way, and then this kid's melting down, and that one pooped, and I forgot the extra diapers, and this one just spilled a smoothie on my white shirt, right? We have to learn to laugh at ourselves. If you don't learn to laugh, you're going to have a miserable time as a family. Mature families know how to thrive together and how to fail together. They know how to inspire awe in one another and how to laugh with one another, and the same is true of mature churches. We have to know how to be in awe together and how to laugh together if we're going to grow in this gift. And so we can tell stories like that one from the Metro North and laugh about it because it's God who we take seriously. It's not ourselves. And we learn his voice by risk. So we've got to be willing to get it wrong if we're ever going to get it right. And if you take risks on the voice of God, his voice tends to become more frequent and more familiar in your life. And on the flip side, if you're not open to appearing foolish from time to time, you're going to have a really hard time following Jesus and learning the shepherd's voice. The author Lily Tomlin says, or she asked the question, why is it that when we speak to God, we're said to be praying, but when God speaks to us, we're said to be schizophrenic? Because the only way to learn the shepherd's voice is to risk foolishness. But which is riskier in the end? Is it obedience that might get it wrong? Or is it holding my comfort zone above God's voice? I would argue that it's the latter. 
Morton Hunt discovered that babies who are born deaf are just as noisy and talkative as babies born with perfect hearing. But over time, they grow quieter and quieter because all they hear is the monologue of their own voice. And when all you ever hear is the internal monologue of your voice, you lose interest. You will lose enthusiasm for prayer if prayer for you is just listing requests. If prayer for you is a monologue, you will do it out of like rigid duty at best. But prophecy, listening to the voice of God, turns prayer into a conversation, and that makes intimacy with God like a zero-entry swimming pool where you can say, I might just be standing ankle deep now, but I'm going to be snorkeling in the deep end eventually. In the Bible, God occasionally does speak audibly. There are certain moments where he says things like, this is my son whom I love in a way everyone can hear. But God's preferred method of communication is a whisper, a still small voice just to one individual. Why? Because of intimacy. See, God will sacrifice effectiveness for intimacy every time. He will always go slower if it means you'll go with him because intimacy is what he's after. It's his end game. Prophecy is not an invitation to become a world-traveling seer who wears 100% hemp. Prophecy is an invitation to come deeper into the water, to wade deeper into intimacy with God. Now third, drawing on the same passage, we see that prophecy releases power. So reading on in 1 Corinthians 14, here's the end result of a church that's active and healthy in prophetic ministry. But if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So prophecy is the mystery of God among us made visible for anyone to see. Prophecy is about mission. It's for the unbeliever as much as it's for the believer because it provokes a sense of holy jealousy. The way that you strengthen one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, it's from another world. There's something divine in the flavor of it. See, prophecy turns us into accidental missionaries. If you can't stand evangelism, try prophecy. Because prophets get the fruit accidentally that evangelists get on purpose. It's something like this. I just thought I was sharing a word for my best friend here, and it seems like a bit of the power of God spilled on the, the guy standing in the back row with his arms crossed. Whoops. <laughs> Lastly, prophecy starts with eager desire. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. We should long that God would restore his communication with us in the most intimate way. You and I should eagerly desire to be on the receiving end of a prophetic word for another brother or sister every time we gather together in church community. That's the biblical teaching. And I find that teaching so fascinating because most of us don't desire it. You know, we have this unspoken expectation in the church for great teaching. And look, I'm all for that. I love sermons. To, uh, I am into biblical teaching to a weird degree. But nowhere in the scripture do we read eagerly desire the gift of teaching. And I think that the modern obsession with teaching is based on this tragic misconception that my words, that Tyler's words, are the most important ones that are going to get spoken in this room tonight. And God just does not see it that way. 
God is not obsessed with better and better sermons about himself. God is obsessed with passing redemption through very ordinary human vessels. And so his preferred method is to place exactly what this person needs in the imagination and on the lips of this person over here. God does not want a team with a few star players. He wants a team where everybody gets to play. And if we really believed that, we would desire prophecy. If we really grasp that God is generous and abundant and tenacious in his pursuit of people, but also equally stubborn about bringing about redemption in the most participatory way possible, then maybe more of us would arrive at church and ask, God, what are you speaking today? And might you want to say something to me that would bring about greater redemption in the life of someone else in this room with me? The author David Fritch says the primary role of the prophetic anointing is to reveal God to the human heart. You see, teaching is God's, is God's using a human voice to tell people about his character. But prophecy is God using a human voice to show people his character. That's what Jesus was getting at on the final night of his life when he said, all of this I've spoken while I'm still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. It's one thing to be told that God loves you. Jesus did that. But the Holy Spirit, through prophecy, pushes the teachings of Jesus from the head where they could be understood and remembered down into the heart where they can heal and become a new foundation to live from. All prophecy is ultimately about revealing Jesus. Old Testament prophecy was about revealing Jesus. New Testament prophecy was about revealing Jesus. Prophecy in the church is about revealing Jesus. It personally reveals a God who plunges past the intellect down into the emotional place where we can receive on a deeper level than the intellect. Romans 5 says it this way, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And across the board in church history, from Augustine to Anselm to Richard of St. Victor to the medieval mystics, the Holy Spirit has always been understood as the personified love that exists between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus made us sons and daughters of God our Father. That's an unchangeable fact, not based on your performance, but the experience of that fact Somehow getting that from a mantra that we recite in rooms like this one to the emotional floor that I live from day in and day out, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The church is not waiting on better and better teaching. What we need is prophets. We need super ordinary people to start believing that God loves to speak so much that he eagerly desires to pass his voice through your lungs. Now, before we go any further, just a quick word to the eager and to the cautious. I want to offer a word to the eager, to those of you who are desiring this as I'm talking about it. Uh, that's a really good desire. It's a biblical desire. And the best way to grow in the prophetic is by practicing the gift of encouragement. Encouragement is uh, prophesying based on what you can see. Prophecy is encouraging someone based on what you can't see. It's doing the same thing by interpreting something that God is saying. So if you eagerly desire the gift of prophecy, then practice encouragement every chance you get. It's a way to stoke the fires of prophecy. 
And then a word to the cautious, to those who are a bit nervous about the prophetic. Paul's instruction that everyone should desire prophecy, it comes in a long line uh, of instruction about need for order when the church gathers to worship. So this is not a rejection of order. It's an invitation to life within that order. The early church was not afraid to clean up messes when they needed to. They were afraid of a church so lifeless that there was never a mess to clean up. The church of our time has become extraordinary at keeping things neat and tidy, and in the process, we have overdeveloped some gifts while almost completely neglecting others. So I want to close tonight with just a few stories. The first is, I've got this friend named John, who was invited to have dinner with a few of our other mutual friends. So six people gathered together, and they're sitting around a dinner table, and they, they eat good food and drink wine and laugh and tell stories, and it was getting late. And, and so someone just suggested, why don't we close tonight in a word of prayer? And they began to pray. And this one guy named Chris, who just met John that night, they had just been introduced that evening, said, John, I'm, I'm having this image that I think might be for you. Would you mind if I shared it with you? It's the opening scene of the movie Hook, when Robin Williams arrives late to his son's baseball game, and so he goes down to find out that he missed the game. And in this image, you're the kid, and you're standing up to bat, and you're scanning the bleachers looking for your father, but, but he's nowhere to be found. And immediately when he says that, John goes from his chair at the dinner table and just collapses on the ground and starts rolling around and writhing on this living room floor. Everyone else at the at this dinner party immediately begins to pray for him instinctively because they can see that something's going on. Now, at this point in the story, there, there's kind of an important backstory that you need to know. When John was a, a little kid, his father abandoned him at a Little League baseball game. He was a little boy standing there in his uniform, and his dad took him by the shoulders and said, I cannot be your dad anymore, and he left. And to this day, he's never seen or spoken to his father again. So just take spirituality out of it for a second. Psychologically speaking, there's a reason that kids can learn foreign languages so much faster than adults can. It's because of brain plasticity. Uh, It's because it's easier to write new neural pathways in a young brain. And that same principle that worked for something good also works for destructive things. So for instance, there's a much higher chance of alcoholism in someone that begins drinking as a minor than in someone who begins drinking in their 20s. Again, because new neural pathways can be written in the brain that create patterns and habits. And so for John, an abandonment experience in his adolescence had shaped him so deeply, it was at an emotional level. It was even beneath his logical processing, so that as a husband, John had been actively resistant to having kids, despite being married, because he feared that he would actually repeat the pattern of his father. Even though he had never voiced that out loud, his life was still being shaped by something that happened to him at a Little League baseball game nearly 30 years prior to this evening. And so when God put that word in the mouth of Chris, a stranger a couple of hours ago, he was doing that for the purpose of healing. And that mess rolling around on the floor was the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was like reaching down and gripping the pain that was in this man's life. And so as people began to pray for him, something funny happened. He's rolling around praying, and then he just leans up, and he just goes, There is so much love! And then leans back down and continues rolling around. And his wife is like, What is happening to my husband? And the reason that he said that is because it's one thing to be told that God loves you. 
But it is another thing entirely for that love to target the deepest and most personal wound that you have. It's the same message, but it's delivered in a way that pierces past the intellect and plunges directly into the heart. It's Romans 5 at a dinner party. The Holy Spirit traveling the neural pathways of John's brain to redeem his past and rewrite his future. You see, listening prayer or prophecy, it reveals Jesus, Jesus' healing childhood wounds that are still bleeding. That's not bad, man. What else have you got? All right, let's do another one. Uh, I was at a church retreat with a friend, and on the final morning, after a whole weekend of activity and spiritual breakthrough, just before the buses were going to roll out and go home, this one guy stands up after the teaching's done during the closing worship, and he says, look, I have a strong sense that there's someone in this room who's got a suicide note sitting on your desk at home. You wrote it before you left, and you came on this retreat as a last-ditch effort, uh, but you're actually leaving the retreat unsatisfied and planning to take your life tonight. If that's you, will you just pop up your hand? Because we want to pray for you. We want to remind you that there's a God who loves you, and we want to say that there's a community of people here that believe that you matter. And this guy raises his hand, and the community surrounds him and prays for him and ministers to him, and that young man is alive today. He's alive because it's one thing to be told that God knows your name and he's numbered your days and he's even counted the hairs on your head. That's comforting. But it's quite another thing for a stranger to say, when you scribbled that note, Jesus was right next to you saying, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And I care if you're here. That is the power of prophecy. It unravels you. The love of God pierces past, and, and it's not just an abstract idea, it becomes a concrete, personal reality. Listening prayer or prophecy reveals Jesus, Jesus even in the midst of suicidal ideation and hopelessness. Okay, one more. Uh, my friend Pete came from London to preach at our church in Brooklyn a couple of years ago, and at the end of his talk, as he closed in prayer, he said, look, I've just got this nagging thought. And to be honest, I was up quite late last night, so it could just be that. But I've got this nagging thought that might be God, so I'm going to go for it. That there's someone in this room that's subconscious about their smile. And you're so subconscious about your teeth that you kind of guard it all the time. You try not to smile. You try to talk without letting people see your teeth. And I think that, that if that's you, I think God just wants to speak to you about that today. It sounds silly, but... If that's you, will you just come forward? And then he went on to say, and, and as a bit of backstory, so Pete had preached at our sister church across town in Brooklyn earlier that morning. And he said, and the truth is, I said this exact same word when I preached across town this morning, and no one responded, so it may just be something weird going on with me. And immediately when he shared it, this guy rushes down the center aisle of the room to meet him and to pray with him. And he says... I was at church across town this morning when you shared that word, and I knew it was for me. And I left church, and I knew I was supposed to respond, and I didn't, and God just kept nagging me about it and nagging me about it. And so finally, I commuted on the subway all the way across the city to be here to hear you preach the same sermon one hour later. And I told God, if he says it again, I'll go this time. That's not even the end of the story. <clears throat> Natasha came up for prayer during that same response time that very same Sunday. Now, Natasha is one of my very closest friends. And as a pastor, 
particularly during times of response, the people that I'm really close with personally, I usually try to give them a little space and not to crowd them, you know. But as she came forward that Sunday, I had this strong sense I needed to pray for her. So I was on one side of the room. She's on the other. There's so much response I can't get to her. So I just climb up across the stage while the band is playing and everything to go over and to pray for her. And as I get to her, she says to me, Tyler, I I was going to tell you today that I'm done. I'm done with all this God stuff. I'm not entirely sure what it is I believe anymore, but I need to get space from this. I'm done. And then she paused. And she said, but if that's what God's like, if he's powerful enough to create all of this with just his breath, but he's also loving enough to use the very same breath to speak to someone about something as small and personal as insecurity about the way their teeth looks when they smile, If that's what God's like, then I want to know him. And that began a trajectory in her life where six months later she told me, I think God's really coming to meet me and prayers at the very center of it. Twelve months after that, she was leading the opening of a house of prayer on a street corner in our city in a storefront that became a blessing and a place of encounter for people in our city and our church and other churches within the city. Let's trace all of that back to the root. Just by being in the room, when a prophetic word was given to someone else, God drew out Natasha's heart, restored her faith, and selected her to lead a prayer movement that blessed both the church and the city. That is the power of prophetic listening prayer. It reveals Jesus. Jesus in self-consciousness around my teeth and Jesus in doubt that makes you want to walk away. So we'll close with this. Mike Pilavachi has this famous phrase, it's messy in the nursery, but it's neat and tidy in the graveyard. And that's not just like a helpful catchphrase. It's very biblical. Matthew chapter 8 records the story of Jesus and his disciples coming ashore at a graveyard on the outskirts of a Gentile city. And there's a man there who's mentally ill and oppressed, and the society has just sent him off to live in the most forgotten place and kind of carried on without him. And then in a display of compassion and power, Jesus heals him. He's completely restored. And a couple of farmers whose land overlooked that graveyard saw the whole thing. And so word began to get around. Someone's here with such power that suffering falls to its knees and obeys him. And he's so loving that his first stop was the most forgotten place and with the most forgotten person. Do you think it's an accident that Jesus performed this miracle in a graveyard? He came to the place of death and there brought life. And then the very next verse in the story says this. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. What? Why? Why would you beg an all-powerful healer to keep his distance? For control. Because they preferred the safety of what was familiar to the unpredictable risk of a living, speaking, active God. God is here. God is really among us. And so they plead with Jesus to leave because he's messing up their way of doing things. They want to get back to what was lifeless, but at least it was familiar. Confronted by the mess of the nursery, they said, no, 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 no. 
Give us back the graveyard, please. See, we know how to live in the graveyard. As the church, we often have a very well-ordered system, and then God shows up and starts making a mess in it. So we'll actually take our graveyard without your mess, God. Sometimes we say that. It's messy in the nursery, but it's neat and tidy in the graveyard. A few religious professionals putting on Christian events is neat and clean and predictable and dead. It's mostly a graveyard, but at least it's a familiar graveyard, right? But the body of Christ, it's messy, but it's alive. It's a nursery. It's loud and unpredictable and rambunctious, but it's also a nursery. It's parented and it's well run. It's a nursery that is filled with life. What are we missing without prophecy in the church? We're often missing the mess. Prophecy means extraordinary breakthrough, and prophecy also means embarrassing, awkward moments of failure. It means people getting it wrong. It means someone being inconvenienced, or maybe at times even offended. And so the question we have to ask ourselves when it comes to prophetic ministry is this, what do you fear more? Do you fear mishandling the voice of God in a community that is founded on love, or do, you miss, or do you fear settling for life without the shepherd's voice? See, prophecy is one of the ways that we say, give us the nursery. Give us the nursery. So here's where we have to start. Eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. We start with desire, with wanting it. Do you want it? In a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to that, but you don't have to do this for me. Honestly, I'm a grown-up. I'm going to sleep just fine tonight. Either way, don't do this for me. This is between you and God. But if you can honestly say, bring on the mess, I eagerly desire the gift of prophecy in my life and in this church, then will you just stand right now, just as a way of showing your eager desire to God? And as you stand, I just want to join my prayer to your desire. Holy Spirit, would you come? God, we don't need you to work magic tricks for us, but we do want to know you in every way that you're knowable. We love you, Jesus. Every way that we've encountered you, it's led to greater freedom and healing and hope and life within us. And so we want more of you, Jesus. We want more of you. And so here you have exactly what you instruct us to be, a community saying, we eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. Bring on the mess and mature us into a people that know your voice a people that pass your voice on to others, and a people for whom stories of prophetic healing become commonplace and ordinary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.